Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. 
This will be our third and final episode showing off the nominees for the 2017 Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction. And we've saved the winner for last. Before we hear this terrific story, I thought I'd mention the two stories that we, unfortunately, were unable to gain their rights to air for one reason or another, and nonetheless offer our congratulations for the author's creative achievement. James Chambers, a song left behind in the Aztecia Hills, appearing in Shadows Over Main Street, Volume 2 from Cutting Block Books, and Mercedes M. Yardley's Loving You Darkly from Friction Magazine, Number 8 from Tethered by Letters, a non-profit literary publisher. Congratulations to both James Chambers and Mercedes M. Yardley. Children of the Night, take a look for their stories and enjoy the two you won't be hearing at Tales to Terrify. And now, let's get on to what you will be hearing this evening. Lisa Minetti has won the Bram Stoker Award twice for her debut novel, The Gentling Box, and her short story, Apocalypse Then. She has also been nominated five times in both the short and long fiction categories. Her story, Everybody Wins, was made into a short film, and her novella, Dissolution, will soon be a feature-length film directed by Paul Lydon. Her work, including The Gentling Box, 1925, A Fall River Halloween, and The Box Jumper, has been translated into Italian. Her most recent published longer work, The Box Jumper, a novella about Houdini, was not only nominated for a Bram Stoker Award and the prestigious Shirley Jackson Award, it won the Novella of the Year Award from This Is Horror in the UK. She has also authored The New Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, two companion novellas in her collection, Death Watch, a macabre gag book, 51 Fiendish Ways to Leave Your Lover, as well as non-fiction books and numerous articles and short stories in newspapers, magazines, and anthologies. Forthcoming works include several other short stories, a dark novel about the Dial Painter tragedy in post-World War I era Radium Girl, and another dark novel, Cultus. Lisa lives in New York in the 100-year-old house she originally grew up in with two wily, mostly black, twin cats named Harry and Theo Houdini. Visit her website, www.lisamanetti.com. Visit her virtual haunted house, www.thechanceryhouse.com. Link will be in the show notes to both. Children of the Night, Tales to Terrify is proud to bring you Lisa Manetti's Bram Stoker Award Superior Achievement and Short Fiction winner, Apocalypse Then, originally appearing in Never Fear, the Apocalypse 13 30 books, March 2017. Mount Denali, June 23, 2020. We thought it was just the wind. The wind, ceaseless, screaming, bearing frozen death, had already kept us pinned for two days in the snow cave we dug at 17,900 feet. A storm no one predicted had suddenly raged out of nowhere and caught us out after we summited. We were only 700 vertical feet above our last camp, the one we'd used as our launch pad to gain the top of Denali. But in a whiteout you can't tell sky from mountain, and the last thing you want to do is step off an unseen, unsensed precipice that will only stop your fall thousands upon thousands of feet lower. 
Stop you, that is, after the initial shocked shout, after the frantic, futile grab at mere air, after the hideous cartwheels and the final doomed spiral down and down and downward still. It's not that far to the tents, Drew shouted at us. You have to yell practically in people's ear holes to be heard at all when the wind roars like that. All four of us knew that the tents meant safety and warmth and plenty of food, but we also knew that most fatalities on big mountains happen on the descent. At 20,310 feet, that's plenty big. The altitude in this case, where less than half of the oxygen available at sea level is around to stoke you, plays havoc with your mind. You think you're being logical, and you're not. You think you're still strong, but your body is weakening, consuming itself with every step, every second you spend at altitude. For a second, I started to turn away and follow Drew, but Alan pulled at my shoulder. We don't have a choice, he screamed. We have to dig in or we'll die. I blinked at him and he shook my arm. Reese, he said. It's not just the cold. We could all of us be blown right off the mountain if the wind gets any stronger. Suddenly, the excitement, read adrenaline, of standing on top of the tallest mountain in North America was gone. Now I was only tired and worse, drained. All four of us had hacked and chipped at the ice with our axes to hollow out the small cave. Penny and Drew were inside shoving snow and ice back through the entrance. Alan was trying to make the tiny space slightly larger, but not too big or we'd lose whatever heat our bodies could generate. The wind began to swirl and gust and the temperature began to plummet. Just before I ducked inside, I glanced at the thermometer that was clipped to the fastening on my lime green parka. It read minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Hal and I figured by insisting we dig in to get out of the wind and the killing cold and just save God knew how many toes and fingers. God knew how many lives. When the actual temperature plummets below negative 20 Fahrenheit, not including the wind chill factor, your chance of getting frostbite rockets up to 95%. My mother always told me I had graceful hands and pretty feet, and I'd seen too many pictures of what frostbite did to any kind of fingers and toes, pretty or not, like massive swelling to the point of grotesquerie. Imagine a hugely bloated sausage that's a finger ballooned up around a tiny, thin, nearly hidden wedding ring. Yes, plenty of images. Photos of hands and feet, marble white and dead black. Pics of the gangrene setting in, of the stumps after amputations of dead digits. And sometimes not just digits, but calves and forearms and noses and ears. I had a dread-approaching phobia when it came to frostbite. The worst, I thought, would be the hope you might retain those taken-for-granted appendages, that blood flow would return to the deadened flesh, that nerves would be regenerated, that what had been burned by cold could be saved. You'd wait and hope when Dr. Shrugged a noncommittal maybe, convincing yourself it would be all right, right up to the moment they told you that the formerly known and loved section of yourself was going to be cut off and thrown away. Permanently. Wake up from the anesthesia and part or even, God forbid, parts of you are gone for good. And while the optimist in me maintains nothing is impossible, hell, I'd just climbed Denali, a.k.a. McKinley. Another equally strong and loquacious element wondered if I could learn to manipulate toilet paper using a hook. 
Wondered if puppies and kittens and small children would flee the monstrous sight of steel, where once there'd been a neat, pretty hand. Mount Denali, June 24th, 2020. The start of our third morning in the small, hallowed-out cave. The air, except when we unblocked the entrance, partially to start up one of the stoves, was beginning to grow fetid from our mingled breath, from our unwashed bodies. It takes a few weeks, and there are no showers, to climb the fifteen miles of mountain, from the stink of the pea bottle. We had our packs with sleeping bags and a little food, snow and ice to melt for drinking water, but we all knew unless we could descend soon, we were doomed. Someone, I forgot who, said we ought to make a dash for the camp, but the wind alone, Alan put in, was strong enough to blow any of us right off the mountain, and the roaring gale-force wind still had not stopped. Storms do blow in and out with great rapidity on the roof of North America, but they did sometimes last more than a week, and sometimes up to two weeks. Drew argued it was something other, something more. Just listen, Alan snapped. It's the wind. It's not a helicopter or a plane. You're just making Penny and Reese more nervous, getting their hopes for rescue up, so shut up. Unlike on Everest, where rescue up high is near impossible, on Denali, planes and copters could make the trip. Of course, not if there were high winds and blizzard conditions. Also, unlike Everest, they tried to remove as many bodies as was feasible. Some felled climbers were right on the standard routes up and down Everest, and would-be summiteers not only saw them, but walked right past, and sometimes stepped over the doomed and stricken. On our mountain, I think there were only about thirty bodies that remained, not like the more than two hundred caught out on the highest peak in the world. After the small silence that crept in after Alan raised his voice at Drew, Penny tried to perk up our spirits. But wow, hey, wasn't it something to be standing on the top? You can see a million pictures, but to be there, so incredible, she said. There was another large boom, and Drew said, Didn't you hear that? I heard it, Penny said. He was my boyfriend, but lately Penny seemed more in sync with Drew than I was. Ah, come on, it's probably just thunder or sonic boom from a jet, Alan put in. Whose turn is it to fire up the stove and cook? You couldn't sit upright completely. The icy ceiling was too low, but I hunched forward and said, I don't know whose turn it is, but I'll do it. My fingers feel a little numb. Okay, thanks, but like I keep telling you, Reese, wiggle your fingers and toes inside the bag. You have to, to keep the circulation going, keep your body temp up. Alan lay back on his side, the top of his shoulder and bicep nearly scraping the ice above. We were like sardines in there, I thought, and at the other end, the rough, triangle-shaped cave narrowed so that someone's feet inside their sleeping bag were always on top of mine. I wondered if that would help or hurt them. Inside my down booties, they felt cold, but not numb. Not yet. So while I waited for the snow and ice to melt only to tepid because I didn't want to waste fuel to heat it to boiling, which takes forever at altitude anyway. I thought about what Alan said, about what I knew about keeping your core temperature up to prevent hypothermia. Your body has this nifty, automatic, unconscious trick to preserve what's needed for survival. It's called vasoconstriction, and the body knows that for the organism, i.e. you, to function, it needs the heart, lungs, and brain to have plenty of warm blood and oxygen. So it has no compunction about sacrificing what is non-essential to live. That translates to the items I was petrified of losing. Ears, nose, fingers, toes. Your body sends a hey-ho, here-we-go signal and pfft. 
Blood begins to retreat from those areas because it has been determined the brain, the heart, and the lungs must be saved. The problem for those caught out in the open is that with the creeping chill, muscles no longer function. After a while, your hands and your feet just won't work. You can't move to save yourself. Some engineering god apparently forgot that part of the equation. Even if you want to move, you can't. And moving is one of the few ways to keep your body temperature high enough to stop it from shutting down. You also have to eat, and more importantly, drink, too. So I was melting snow, and Alan and Drew were keeping a sharp eye on how much fuel we still had and how much food was left in the packs. Fussing with the small stove and moving my fingers, I reasoned, might see me out of the snow cave, all digits still intact. When you climb Denali, unlike, say, Everest, you carry heavy loads and pull even heavier sleds with equipment and food. It's pretty typical to have somewhere around 150 pounds, only 80 or so on the sled you're dragging. But we'd traveled light on summit day. The bulk of our gear, sleds and supplies and food, were all 700 feet below us in our last camp. In the half-gloom of the cave, Alan wanted us to check through our packs for any food or provisions we might have overlooked. One at a time. We'll just be jarring and jouncing and aggravating one another. Maybe, he said. A packet of powdered soup or dehydrated turkey slipped down to the bottom or meandered inside a pocket. Maybe you've got a few hand warmers or a couple of hot rods stashed you forgot about. Penny checked her pack first hauling out some small items like a pair of goggles, earbuds, a neon blue balaclava, a dorky-looking flexible nose screen. She was slowly and, it seemed to me, haphazardly pawing through stuff no one really needed inside the cave. It was then I began to suspect not only that she wasn't a team player, but that maybe she was keeping something back, hiding something more. That morning she'd been complaining about having a headache and feeling nauseous, the early symptoms of AMS, acute mountain sickness. Left untreated, it can be fatal. Fluid in your lungs can drown you. Swelling in your brain can kill you. Alan had already culled through the pared-down emergency kits we'd brought when we were going lightweight for the summit and come up with a couple of Diamox and some aspirin, which can help thin blood so it doesn't turn a sludgy with the cold and lack of movement. And while none of us had packed closed foam sleeping pads, which would have kept our down bags a layer further away from the ice and therefore drier, she'd packed things I didn't understand why anyone would include when they were trying to get up to the summit and back as quickly and easily as possible. The more you carry up, the harder it is to make the top and get back safely. Cell phones are spotty on Denali, except a few places along the west buttress like Windy Corners, but they were lightweight and, thanks to technology, took great pictures. So it didn't seem odd that she had the phone. What was odd was that for what was supposed to be a 12-hour trip from high camp and back, she'd packed solar panels in the charger to power it. Did she think she was going to sit on the summit and wait in the freezing air till it worked so she could call her mother? She certainly wasn't going to use solar power inside the cave or outside in a blizzard. The first time Penny started puking, Alan began to ramp up his efforts to radio the med camp staffed with doctors who were also mountaineers at 14,000 feet. D-Rap calling Denali 2. D-Rap calling. Do you copy? Denali 2, this is D-Rap. We're pinned at 17.9. Denali 2, are you there? 
DRAP was an acronym of our initials. Every group that climbs the mountain comes up with their own moniker. He'd been trying all the lower camps the past few days, but no one had answered, and we thought maybe the blizzard and the wind was interfering with the signals. Maybe the storm wasn't as localized as we'd speculated, and people in the lower camps had fled down to the base at Cahiltna Glacier, and for all we knew, scurried right off the mountain. Med group at Denali, too. We have a sick climber. Do you copy? Even I could hear the concern that was moving toward panic had crept into his voice. That was just before things got a whole lot worse. Mount Denali, June 25th, 2020. Penny was shivering in her sleeping bag. Alan told her for about the 14th time if she'd stop keeping her face inside, her breath wouldn't condense and therefore actually make the bag wetter, the down clump up and become less effective. I don't want to lose my nose. Just leave me alone, she said, her face burrowed deep inside. There was another of those huge, hollow-sounding booms. The wind still howled, and there were times it not only shook loose particles from the ceiling of our tiny cave, but we could feel it like a series of thumps inside. It had seemed darker inside that morning. I was worried the noise or the wind had set off an avalanche above us. No one said anything, though I told myself it was just anxiety. Had to be, because the air was still moving around us. Some of those gusts whirled through the slitted entrance like daggers flicked from a knife-throwing expert's fingertips. Nobody talked much since Alan had begun rationing the food last evening. It was Drew's turn to get the stove going, and we lay in silence listening to its thin hiss. I rolled over, and the first thing I noticed was that, even with the stove going, it somehow seemed brighter inside the cave. I felt my heart give a little leap. Alan, maybe it's over, maybe it's clearing. It's lighter in here, I said. Drew shrugged. The stove. Brighter than just the stove, I mean, I said. For a second, the brightness seemed to arrow from the recesses of Penny's sleeping bag, and I wondered if somehow she'd accidentally turned on her Petzl, the headlamp she'd carried to the top as if we were summiting Everest instead of Denali, where this time of year there was daylight twenty-four hours every day. But this light had had color to it, and the Petzls were sun-white. Despite the altitude, my anoxically fogged brain synapsed a few equations— and came up with a connect-the-dots moment. Penny, are you using your phone? Alan had been very specific about saving juice that we might need to get out, to get rescued. Facebook, she muttered. Oh, Christ, give me that goddamn thing, Alan said. Just a little. I was bored, scared. I thought I might find something about us. I mean, for us. Half the time you can't get anything at all. A transparent lie as far as I was concerned. She was out of it, but she was probably on there anyway. As often as she could pick up a signal, counting how many thumbs-ups and smileys she'd gotten for summiting Denali. Hand it over, Penny. He was about to shut it down when something caught his eye. What the hell is this? Alan said. What the fuck? Yellowstone Blue? Now we take turns using our cell phones very briefly. Earbuds plugged in because you can't hear the news in the roar of the wind. There are a lot of facts to absorb, and in hushed, desultory voices we share what we learn. I heard that after Tambora exploded way back in 1815, they called the next year, 1816, the year without a summer, 
In New York, there was snow in June, frost in August. People starved in Europe because with the temperature dropping, crops failed worldwide, I said. Hell of a way to end global warming, Drew said. It's not funny, Alan put in. Yellowstone, they estimate, is 50 to 100 times worse. In the light of the softly hissing stove, his lips looked blue. The eruption spewed smoke and ash 80,000 feet into the atmosphere. When Krakatoa erupted in 1883, you could have covered Manhattan 200 feet deep with the material it blasted out. Can it, will you, Reese? That's the past. More than a hundred years ago, for Christ's sake, Drew said. The past is the predictor of the future, especially when it comes to volcanoes, pal. Listen, from the last time Yellowstone spewed like 70,000 years ago, they found eight feet of ash they dug down to in Rapid City, which is 400 miles away. Don't you get it? The breadbasket is gone. Gone. The ash in the air moves around the earth. Hell, Planes can't fly because they get that shit in the engines. It turns into ceramic. It's all gone. I don't accept that, Drew said. I shrugged. Those huge booms we heard, those are nothing new either. The initial eruption from Krakatoa was heard more than 3,000 miles away. I mean, it's out in the middle of Indonesia, and one-twelfth of the Earth heard it. The shockwave alone traveled around the globe seven times. Seven! Not helicopters, Drew. Not thunder. Not avalanches, Alan said, dipping a finger into the pot of melting snow to see if he could turn off the gas. Shockwave. It can affect everywhere, Penny said. The pyroclastic flows instantly incinerate everything within hundreds of miles. Further away, buildings actually collapse from the weight of the ash. Nothing can grow. Animals, people, die from breathing that shit into their lungs. Even if it's not superheated, it's going to be twilight for five or six years, I said. People in bunkers, Penny began. You're in a bunker, Penny. How's that working for you so far? Alan said. Mount Denali, June 29, 2020. In 1884, the year after Krakatoa, an artist named, don't you love the coincidence? William Ashcroft sketched some 530 drawings of the blood-red skies over London, not unlike, I gather, those spectacular crimson displays when the good old USA played let's test another nuclear weapon in the deserts out west back in the 50s. We've been here eight days, and I think the food we have left is down to two Snickers bars, a granola bar, one package of dehydrated beef stroganoff, and three packets of tri-berry goo, the 100-calorie high-energy gel. Not that we're going anywhere. Of course, we're out of fuel, so Alan has been parceling out pinches of the beef stroganoff. Oh, naturel. Without being able to melt ice and snow, you can't reconstitute it. It tastes like very old kitty crunches that have been nearly pulverized. Drink water now is strictly limited to holding some snow inside your mouth. It helps lower your core temperature more quickly. Two days ago, Drew was all for scarfing down the last of the food and making a run for the tents. He argued it was better to take in the energy and nutrients and try. But the minute he went outside and saw how dark it was, how Alaska's midnight sun had gone poof. Midsummer, he realized the past, and specifically Keats, might have some relevance after all. Darkling, I listen, and for many a time... I have been half in love with easeful death.
There's no pretending death isn't coming, or that it won't be welcome. No matter how easy or how easeful freezing is, we know it's death. One goes to sleep. One's core temperature dips too low to sustain the core, brain, lungs, heart. And then you drift toward a sleep that's ageless and forever. And then soon after, one's heart stops beating. A flightless bird that no longer mourns that it never felt its wings beat, its body soar. We've all made little recordings. Sometimes I think about Pompeii and can cheer myself up for half a minute or so. The little artifacts found like the imprint of gold bracelets in a brothel. And who knows if someone, someone who wasn't instantly vaporized or starved or bone-sickened by breathing in Yellowstone ash might find us, our time-capsule plastic telephones in twenty centuries. Our recordings, as you will certainly correctly speculate, are all variations of Robert Falconscott's last journey to the Antarctic. Another cold place, now surely colder still. Remember? He wrote, These rough notes and our dead bodies must tell the tale. It won't be long. The blisters from the frostbite as the temperature dropped and the wind dropped it further down have stopped swelling, stopped being a nuisance. Dead flesh cannot generate healing mechanisms like blisters, and in the intense cold and with not even sips of water to moisten our mouths, desiccation like freezing is painless. In an atmosphere of minus 70 Fahrenheit, spittle... Water and piss all freeze instantly. There will be sleep, and it will be welcome. On June 22, 2020, while we were marooned in an ice cave high on Mount Denali, the volcanoes at Yellowstone National Park and just beyond its borders erupted in fury. The effects cascading ended life as most of the seven billion on the planet knew it. But let's be clear— there's no one who doesn't come face to face with his or her own apocalypse. The deathbed may be the street mugging, the raging fire, the silence of a nursing home gurney, the third seat on the aisle in a crashing plane, the venom of a snake. A hundred thousand apocalyptic ways to make an end of your own life, your own soul. It may be violent, it may be gentle, it may be prosaic or gaudy, but it must be. It was apocalypse then, it's apocalypse now. That was Lisa Minetti's Apocalypse Then, as read by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and voice actor. She performs for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep Podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, and Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at NicoleDoolin.com. Thank you, Nicole. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. 
Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.